0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Lucas, I'm an investor here at Village Global, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. Our guest today is Shil Monat, who is a co-founder and partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures, a fintech-focused seed firm. Prior to BTV, Shil founded and was a GP at 500 Fintech, and has also founded and sold multiple companies before that. Shil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here, Lucas. Awesome. Shil, sure. uh, so you have uh, a big announcement this week. Uh, you're launching the second fund for Better Tomorrow Ventures. Do you yeah. want to tell us more about that? How big is the fund? What, what, what else
0: is new? Yeah, we launched Fund 2 in December and uh, had a pretty quick close. It's a $150 million core fund and a $75 million opportunity fund. And the core fund you know, will do our standard leading pre-seed and seed rounds and following on And then the opportunity fund will be um, to invest across our portfolio in, you know, BCD rounds of just our top positions.
1: Right. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think uh, Better Tomorrow Fund 1 was a $75 million fund. That's right. Yeah. Right. Uh, So I'm sure you've heard the saying uh, in venture, your fund size is your strategy. Do you agree? And, and, and how does the new fund changes the way that Better Tomorrow operates?
0: Yeah, it is true. I, I, I do agree, by the way, your fund size is a strategy to, to a certain extent. I think it, it makes sense. Not not in every case, but for us, look, I think a couple things change. One, you know, for better or for worse, valuations are up significantly in the past couple of years, particularly in fintech, our category. And so for the same ownership stake we have to put more dollars behind it. Um, So so that's one thing that has changed. So let's say that changes things by 20%. Another thing that changes is we feel like a lot more of our companies are graduating on to the next round and then the round after that. And in fund one, the $75 million fund, we had a one-to-one strategy. So every first check dollar got a dollar of follow-on capital. In fund two, we have more capital behind um, that first check. So instead of one to one, it'll be like one to 1.5 is is what we're thinking. And and then the other thing is like with this fund size, we're able to look at a different type of company that we didn't look at then. So for example, a company that has raised a previous like pre-seed round, maybe a company's raised a pre-seed round of a million and a half bucks, and now they're looking to raise a 4 or $5 million round. with the first fund, we would be pretty reluctant to look at something like that. But with this fund, it totally works.
1: And how do you think about the follow-on decisions that go into the opportunity fund? Are you bringing in someone else on the team that, that is going to, whose job is going to be to look at the, that follow-on decision? And otherwise, how, how is that different than the initial check that you're writing into companies?
0: Yeah, good question. So, um first we're we're not bringing anyone on specifically for the opportunity fund, at least not yet. I think we're we would be open to it and you know, if if we brought somebody on, the idea would be to build that opportunity fund into something bigger, like more of a growth fund at, at sort of the next raise. But as of now, um that's not the plan. And how we think about it is, you know, we have sort of a list of our top companies and sort of where we think they ultimately will end up you know of course it's all loose but i think with the opportunity fund we want to make sure that there's still a 5x upside in every company we invest in and i i think you know i actually think the opportunity fund is a really interesting um space and an opportunity for us opportunity you know uh the opportunity fund is a good opportunity um but actually like you and I both started off doing a lot of angelist SPVs and my first fund, 500 FinTech, was a $15 million fund. And I would do the first check from the fund and I would do the late follow-ons and later stage stuff from the SPVs. And if I look at my track record on the SPVs, it's actually a higher IRR than the core fund. And, you know... Slightly lower multiple, but higher IRR, meaning like a faster path to exit. And I think that that can continue with the opportunity fund. You know, so, and then, you, sorry, you, you asked about like how we make decisions. We have a pretty small team, um, you know, three full time people at the moment um, looking to add to it. But we sort of together make a decision about what we're going to do on the opportunity fund. And Generally speaking, the person who led the seed round, you know, the other person has to decide what we're doing on the opportunity fund is the idea. And, you know, we already, we actually already have a couple of companies that, that we're pretty excited about for the opportunity fund.
1: That's awesome. To dive a little bit deeper on the LP side, how was the fundraising process for fund two? Uh, and how was it different, if at all, uh, than the fundraising process for the first
0: fund? It was night and day difference um it was completely completely not at all the same fund 1 we you know it took us about 9 months to raise fund 1 you know part of that was like the pandemic you know we probably lost 2 months like march april may and then also there was actually like a bit of a reset where folks there were folks who had committed and then backed out so we probably lost like at least 3 months now that i think about it but early on you know, for fund one, it was pretty easy to get to our first close. We got like $20 million fairly easily. I had a previous portfolio, a previous um, fund of 15 million. And a lot of those LPs came back, or actually I should say all, all those LPs came back. And then fund one, you know, after that first close of 20 million, it was really hard to get anything after that. And then after the pandemic, sort of the market started coming back in May And then it ended up being very quick for us to close. And we ended up over our target. Our target was 60, we ended up at 75. This time actually our target was 125 and we ended up at 150, which was our hard cap. It was a very easy process this time, Uh, knock on wood. I think we didn't actually adequately realize how, what the process would be like. Um, So we kind of told people, uh, we had an LP meeting late last year we told our lps were you know we're asking what's the plan for fund 2 we told them like yeah we're going to start raising now but you know we'll be raising in q1 was sort of what we thought and, and in fact we actually told people like don't worry there's no rush like it's going to take us several months and then what ended up happening that, that was like a, a screw up on our part because what ended up happening is um there was a ton of interest from our existing lps and we sort of gave our existing LPs like a certain date. Um, you know, it was actually just like I think three weeks in total. And we said, you know, give us your commitments by here, by this date, and then after that, we're going to open it up to everyone. And then it ended up being that we were we were actually like oversubscribed pretty much immediately. So I, I think a lot of the fund of funds LPs um, that we have, and you know, that's a lot of the the LP based fund of funds and family offices. A lot of those guys, I think, had already underwritten us for fund two. And then, you know, it's pretty early on fund one, like returns and stuff like that. But I think they saw quality of follow on investors was quite high. And so they actually, many of them wrote us like a much larger check in fund two than they did in fund one. Um, So we ended up in the end, we actually ended up cutting people back on their commitments, um, which is a, a really strange thing for me. Like, never in my life has somebody, wanted to give me money. And I said, no, I, I don't want your money. That's never happened to me before. So it was a new thing for me. I don't know if I'll ever get used to it. Congratulations. Um, Thanks.
1: And how did you manage the new, re- the relationship with institutional LPs that converted into fund two that were not previous investors into fund one? Uh, what are things that you did to build that relationship that worked out really well? And and perhaps like, what are
0: things that you thought that would work that, that didn't actually help. Yeah. I think the you know, I think there are a lot of folks that we that we met at during fund one process who you know, said, "Hey, we genuinely like you. It's just like we don't really do fund ones or the timing isn't right." So there were some folks like that that we kept on our quarterly updates. And you know, sending out a quarterly update is a, just a way to like engage with those folks. And so a lot of times those guys would write us back and say hey like let's do a catch up and you know a lot of those folks who said let's do a catch up ended up converting in, into fun2 i think they were already ready basically when when we when we said hey we're doing fun2 they already knew they were going to come in so it was a pretty easy process i think that that was the best thing we did i, I think in terms of things we didn't do right I'm sure there are a ton of them. I mean, the main one is like we completely misjudged timing. So there are folks that we would have loved to have in to fund too, but we told them like, don't worry, like Q- Q1 is fine. <laughs> it's good. We're still going to be raising in Q1. And then, you know, their timelines were such that like it didn't work out. And so I think there's sort of like a hierarchy of like quality of LP that people want. And you know we're super happy with with our LP base. I think they're just like outstanding people that we 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 like hanging out with and stuff. Um, and it, it but it is heavy heavily um, weighted towards fund of to funds. So we have um, Green Spring, Invesco, Industry, um, Sapphire, Franklin Park, Pre-Sight, Vintage, <laughs> all um, LPs. And I think, you know, we would like to have more endowments, like the idea of supporting a nonprofit venture is ideal. We do have a couple, but I think those guys have a longer lead time. And in this fundraise process, several of them just told us like they're on an annual budgeting process. And so maybe if we would have waited till Q1, that would have been better for them.
1: Right. And If you look back in the first couple of years of Better Tomorrow, is there anything that you know now about being a seed manager that you wish you knew before starting BTV, knowing that you were actually a GP at 500 FinTech before this?
0: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I learned a lot in 500 FinTech and just like running a fund, as you know, you learn a lot. I think like there's all this stuff you can read on Twitter and I feel like there are a lot of things I read and I didn't you know, fully understand or think about. And I, I thought about differently then than I do now. An example is like ownership importance. Like I thought I didn't care about it before. I thought like, I just want to be in a bunch of great companies, but actually like each company that you're in takes a lot of time and you only have so much time to dedicate. And if you don't have significant ownership, it like doesn't, make it's not a good use of your time because you could spend be spending that time on another company that you do have good ownership in. Another thing is like the real power law dynamics in in venture. You know, I think um, 500 fintech there are there's like 80 companies in the fund. Um it's a huge portfolio. And by the way, BTV1 is about 30 companies. So in 500 fintech there are 80 companies and there are three of them that are each more than one x the fund. One of them is like several x the fund, and you realize like, okay, the fund was only fifteen million dollars, but if today, let's say that fund is worth a lot more, it's like well over a hundred million dollars. Then I was writing these tiny checks, and now those tiny checks, even a company that I wrote a small check into, that like three or five or 10 X actually is relatively insignificant to the outcome of, of the fund. And it's sort of strange to think about that, that like these small outcomes are insignificant. It's all about the outliers. And like, I knew that going in, I had, you know, read all the stuff, but actually like seeing it in practice is is different. So it's been a learning for me. Um, and then I think fund one to fund two, one learning that I think is clear is there's not that much that can happen from a portfolio. Like most of our investments in fund fund one were made in 2021. So like there are of course a bunch of markups in this, you know, in this market. Like there's so many markups and everything. But I think what they base you off of, what LPs base you off of, is sort of strength of follow-on investors. And so I think We have that in our portfolio, fortunately, and I think that is part of what made it really easy um, to raise fund too. Right. So last question
1: around fund management. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned is uh, prices and prices have gone up substantially, especially in fintech. Um, how do you think about price discipline? And I ask this question; um, it's timely because there's a company that we, you and I have looked at together last year that shall remain unnamed, and we gave them a term sheet, and you know they ended up taking someone else's at a much higher valuation. And today they just announced a very, a very substantial series A. Um, so, how how has your thoughts around uh, price discipline changed?
0: Yeah. So I, I think I still do think price discipline is important i think you know we only have so many shots on goal and if you it's sort of a combination of price discipline and ownership something that i've done recently that i never thought i would do is make a trade there so like pay a little bit higher price but get more ownership um, and i never saw myself doing that before like i always would have taken the lower price but now i you know now i'm i'm making a slightly different trade off Um, I tend to think, you know, we are definitely never, we're not like going to be the cheapest capital that a founder could take. I think there always are these folks that you can add to the cap table that are relatively price insensitive. I think we have talked to our portfolio about this and like, it's hard to know, you know, if what they're telling you is the reality, but what they say is like, By working with us, they improve their odds of success. And that next round was done a lot easier because we were involved. So I think, you know, I don't think like we're ever going to be like the highest price uh, term sheet, but I think we will help maximize the value of the company. And I think that's like what our founders say. And actually, it's what our founders say to other founders that we're looking to back, and that's been awesome. and it, it like has, has served us really well, where it's pretty infrequent now. like I, I feel so happy that like we're a pretty new fund, you know we're rel- relatively unknown, get becoming more known, but I think our founders have really helped us win a lot of deals that we didn't think we would be winning against, comp- against funds that we looked up to actually still look up to, and that's been, it's been awesome. Amazing. Um, so
1: we're going to talk about the markets, but before we get there, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit how your perception of the fintech landscape has evolved since the launch of Better Tomorrow? When you launched Fund One, uh, your thesis was correct me if I'm wrong that everything is becoming fintech.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how has how has that changed over the last couple of years?
0: Yeah. So still very much believe it to be true. Um, a lot of our uh, You know, some of our portfolio companies build products that help non fintech companies become fintech companies. And I think that still very much is is true. One thing that's kind of interesting is it feels like we just started, you know, a couple of years ago, not that much time. But in the world of fintech, everything has changed. Like um, when we were raising fund one, and I should have talked about this when I mentioned fund two was a lot easier to raise than fund one. A big part of that is like in Fund One, people are questioning the fintech thesis, and they were saying, you know, they're at that time they were saying like, well, there haven't really been many exits in fintech, and uh, and like there aren't that many public companies to to look at, and then now the market is very different. I think also we we nailed the timing because the market was a lot better <laughs> in December than it is today, <laughs> the public markets fintechs, but I I think there's a lot of a lot more competition because a lot of other funds that weren't looking at fintech are suddenly like focusing on fintech, and now actually some of those have moved on to Web three. So <laughs> some of those are out of out of the contention set. But yeah, I, I think you know there's more interest in fintech than ever before. There's more capital, and that's great. In terms of the thesis, you know we still believe that a lot everything is fintech, and we're excited about the infrastructure layer. Um, that other non fintech companies can use to become fintech companies. There's really this question of like, you know, in API companies, a build versus buy question. Something like, you know, like Twilio, you know, would you build it or buy it or Stripe or, 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 um, it, it, and in fintech, I think like more and more the case is people are choosing to buy to pay because talent is really hard to get and expensive. Um, And if you can hire an engineer and put them on something that advances the company forward and just use a commodity-ish product for um, part of your stack, you'd rather do that. And I think we're going to continue to see that over time in software and in fintech.
1: And are there particular areas of fintech that you think Think could be overhyped or that you don't, you're not as excited about. I remember when you launched the first fund, one of the areas that you mentioned was Plat4x. Everybody was talking about plat for x in the beginning of uh, 2020. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you hear a lot about now that you don't really think has legs?
0: Oh, yeah. Good question. I think, you know, I think in the Web3 space, we're seeing a lot of stuff that I think is very much a like, Works right now, but may not work in the future. Thing. Um, So, you know, I I have been a a skeptic on uh, the profile pick NFTs. And I think, you know, I'm seeing all sorts of stuff there um, that I'm not that interested in. I think there are a lot of companies building like DAO tooling. And I think at the stage that we invest, it's been really hard to choose one. And I'm not sure it's the sort of thing where like i definitely wouldn't say that these aren't going to work but i'd say like i'm skeptical on them working on on a lot of them working yeah those are, those are some in the web3 space cool and to talk a, a little bit more about the public
1: markets uh i mean we've seen a massive drawdown we're in the beginning of february it's been a terrible year to open your 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 robinhood <laughs> app um, <Yeah. laughs> And also
0: a terrible, a terrible time if you're an investor in Robinhood too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we've seen some of these companies down anywhere from 50 to 90%. Um, Is your view that fintech public companies are especially affected in in, in this drawdown? And and if so, why would that be?
0: Yeah, it does appear that they are more significantly impacted than other companies and, I don't have a good answer for it. I think maybe interest rates disproportionately impact fintech companies um, in that, like, they are expected to grow, and if 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 the expected growth is like far in the future, then you're disproportionately impacted by interest rate hikes. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think some of it is frankly like unjustified, and then some of it, you know, a lot of these companies that went out by SPAC. I didn't think had sustainable business models to start with. You know, an example that's easy to easy to shit on is Metro Mile. I think you know Chamath posted his rationale for it. I actually responded to it, saying like, "Hey, this doesn't make sense." And you know, Metro Mile. Let's see, what was it trading at? What did it come out at? And what is it at now? Um, it's down anywhere
1: from eighty five to ninety five percent at this point.
0: Yeah. So it traded at a high about a year ago. It was trading at almost $20. Today it's $1.78. And it's basically trading for nothing. Like they have cash in the balance sheet. So it's basically, you know, nothing. And you know, a lot of these companies don't have great business models. And we've, you know, some of my portfolio companies that are on the private side, we've been looking at these business these companies as comps. And then, like we've actually been scratching our heads on some of them. Um, you know, we we have um, we have a bunch of insurance companies in our portfolio. The insurance businesses have been really uh, screwed in the public markets. So, um, Metro Mile, Doma, um, Lemonade, Hippo, and Root are the insurance companies, uh, sort of tech insurance companies that went public in the past couple of years. And you know, they're down between. Um, sort of all of them are down from all time highs of like 70 to 90%. And that's tough to swallow. <laughs> and especially the folks who invested in those those last private rounds. I, I think we've sort of looked at, um, so we asked all of our insurance companies, like, hey, can you benchmark, like here are all the things we want to track against those and see like, are we building a sustainable business? And some of these companies aren't and some of these companies i think will end up being zeros or getting acquired for not that much so it's something that like frankly has been a good wake up call for us like hey we need to build a sustainable business there was this mantra of like growth above everything else and actually like in a low interest rate environment like that can make sense but as interest rates change like that that model changes and you want to prioritize profitability and so we've definitely guided our companies towards being more profitable
1: right and in your view, is what happening in the public markets today a massive crash? Is it a deflation? You know, just back to earth. It, what, what do you what do you see happening?
0: Yeah, I think. Look, some of it, frankly, we were very much due for this correction, and it, it needed to happen. Um, and then some things, in some cases, we definitely overcorrected. But overall, I think it's it's you know part of part of being in this business. I do think a lot of these companies I'd be surprised if they go much lower than where they are today like they're sort of low pe ratios market caps that that have are are lower than like a couple of previous rounds in the private market so I think there's some bargains to be had here another question would be like what happens in this market on the private side I'm sure that, that might have been like your next question and that has been interesting look like we it's funny somehow it's like taboo to talk about it or something like people give you shit if you're like hey the market's changing but actually like it's changing we're seeing it in our in our private you know in our, in our later stage rounds companies that were would have been able to raise easily at a higher valuation are now getting like fewer term sheets people are saying you know the later stage investors are saying They're jittery on price these days. So it is having an impact. Certainly at the like C and D stage, we've seen that already in our portfolio. You know, it's a question of whether it comes down to seed. And usually, like, there's like a lag period in every round, and it hasn't hit seed yet, from what I can tell.
1: Right. On the other hand, you know, in 2021, we've seen funds raise at exorbitant numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Is your perspective that that is going to have an upward push on prices and uh, on the market? How, how how does that impact the, the landscape in your perspective?
0: Yeah. So there's more dry powder than ever before. But ultimately, especially the dry powder, some of this dry powder is from like crossover funds and they like need to show good returns And a lot of these funds, it used to be that these funds were like actually three year funds. Now, a lot of these funds are annual funds, annual vintages. And so, if you think about that, like they do need to be able to raise the next fund. And maybe they'll make this current fund stretch out a little bit longer. So, I think, like, yes, there's a lot of dry powder out there, but still, like, they need to show post good results. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to easily raise the next fund. So, I, I think it still has impact. But the impact is muted because to your point, there's a lot of dry powder out there. Right.
1: And a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Wealthfront acquisition uh by UBS. Um yeah. do you think we're gonna see more of
0: those to come? Yeah, I I do think so. You know, Wealthfront is a company that had been around for a really long time. And, you know, I, I think had been through some real ups and downs in that. They had they actually had a down round in uh 20 20 end of 2017. I think that one is an interesting idea. Like the idea was we're gonna convert people who are using human advisors and paying 2%, get them to pay 30 basis points for a computer advisor. Now, what ended up happening was this product was relatively easy to build, and customer acquisition was expensive. And you know, the sort of like CAC LTV game was always tricky in that business. So, you know, they they didn't quite achieve the outcome that they wanted. Although, you know, it in the end it was a $1.4 billion outcome. So it's like nothing to sneeze at, but but not quite, I think, what the aspirations were. They had, I think at that point, they had like $27 billion in AUM. So if you look at it from a multiples, Perspective, it's actually not that great, but I think it's due to the the high cost of acquisition. In terms of like whether whether we'll see more, I know other institutions are sniffing around, and I think there there will be uh, bargains to be had.
1: Right, and you know I've seen I think Howard Lindzen talk about this. Uh, you know, like everybody talks about disrupting the banks and disrupting Goldman Sachs and bringing out City and all of these folks. Do you think it's possible that by the end of twenty twenty two we're going to see a world where you know, these massive banks are actually more powerful than ever, uh, having acquired many of these, uh, of these startups. Um, how, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. All these startups, you know, it was originally posted as like, they need, their startups are coming to append the banks. And then in the end, you end up partnering with banks, but the banks you partner with are different than the, than the big banks. I do think, you know, the biggest banks have this flywheel that works quite well for them it's really the smaller banks that are being more impacted like they don't have the technology teams it's hard for them to stay in, but to 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 continue to prosper and you know there are like i think something like 5000 banks out there so there's a a huge long tail that does get impacted the big banks i think they will make some acquisitions um it makes sense for them to make acquisitions in wealth management space it doesn't make as much sense for them to acquire anything in the neobank space part of the reason for that as you probably know is the Durbin amendment regulates the amount of money you make on interchange so interchange is when you swipe your debit card or credit card the amount of money that that the merchant pays and that pays for your rewards and all this other stuff in 2000 uh, after the financial crisis they cha- they regulated the amount that you could make on on debit cards and but there was an exemption for banks that are less than 10 billion dollars in assets. So if you are a neobank, you work with a partner bank that is less than 10 billion dollars in assets and then you still make, you know, a percent and a half ish on interchange. And so that sort of enabled all these neobanks to have better unit economics than the larger banks. But if a large bank acquires a neobank, they're then like reducing the revenue by 75% instantly. So it doesn't really make much sense.
1: And to talk a little bit more about the seed landscape, um, as a seed manager, how in, in it does what happen, what's happening today in the public markets change, if in any way, uh, how you're proactively managing your portfolio?
0: Yeah, um, it's a good question. So a couple of things that I've done recently that are a little bit related to the public markets is um, I actually ended up taking uh, selling shares for secondary for the first time ever. I had never done it before. And then I executed a transaction uh, last month and I just thought, hey, we're in this crazy, what seems like a crazy um, place that valuations are quite high and it might make sense for me to take a little bit of money off the table And I think I did it at a good time. Honestly, luck more than anything else. You know, that's sort of the only change I could say. I'd say, like, you know, I'd be crazy to say we're not looking at the public markets and, you know, making investment decisions based on how the market perceives some of these companies, um, particularly in insurance. Um, I think, you know, the market has sort of stated that. you know, how they look at these insurance companies is different than how some of the private investors were looking at them. And I think that does make me more skittish on doing investments in the category.
1: And you mentioned a while ago that, you know, you're never going to be the cheapest capital that, that a founder can take on the cap table, and also uh, you've been able to win out uh, against a couple of the big brands uh, that are now coming in uh, into in seed. Um, how do you think that the the dynamics between multi stage firms and, and seed specific funds has evolved or shifted over the last one to three years?
0: Yeah, um, I think you know I think that the multi stage funds are expanding significantly on both sides so they're coming down to seed and and actually going up into the crossover territory. Um I think you know it really depends. I think you can't paint the ball with the same brush. I think some of them I've seen invest at seed and like not really give the time of day to the founders. And founders have like founders have told us like we wish we wish we worked with you um you know, I'm not getting what I want from these funds. Um, and if you think about it, like, you know, if they write a two or $3 million check out of a like multi-billion dollar fund, it like doesn't mean that much to them. Um, it's really an option value check in some cases. And then, you know, I have other, other tier one funds that do invest at Seed and are super hands-on and like do a great job. Um, so it varies widely. In terms of competition for us, I think... You know our value prop is pretty clear. We are fintech founders backing fintech founders, and you know you can speak to anyone in our portfolio. They'll tell you why they chose to work with us, and many of those folks have now worked with other tier one Series A funds and Series A Series B funds, and they can sort of tell you the value add of like why you should work with us. The way I've always told our founders um, to do it is at seed you work with the folks that you think can be most helpful to you and most supportive in your long journey. And so, you know, previous founders are good um, folks that like really understand what you're doing. And also, you know, if you can get a community out of it, that's also great. And then at series a, I generally say, you know, a top brand is actually very helpful. The top brands are top brands for a reason and that makes your future odds a little bit better. And they also can help with recruiting and customers. Sometimes like not even, sometimes the help is simply their brand. Um, And then generally speaking, series B and beyond, you just go for price. Um, And then if you've missed any of those along the way, you can pick it up in the next round.
1: Right. And to touch a little bit on international markets, uh, I know Better Tomorrow has played a lot in in different regions of the the world. How do you see um, the opportunity for fintech in different areas of the globe? Um, I know you and I have talked a lot about LATAM. Um, Are there areas that you're particularly excited about? And are there other areas that you're particularly bearish on?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um we we invest globally as you mentioned. We so we've invested in B, in BTV1 we invested in Mexico, Brazil, Nigeria, Kenya, India, Pakistan, and Indonesia and uh, aside from the US and then we we also invested in Israeli and Canadian companies building for the US market. So, I think all of those countries that we've invested in with the exception of uh, of Kenya are like Greater than 100 million population and large and growing smartphone penetration or middle class, you know, growth in middle class. And then most of them actually offer the ability to go to an adjacent country. So, you know, if you start in Indonesia, you can go to the Philippines or Malaysia. You know, if you start in Mexico, you can cover a bunch of LADAM. And I think those are sort of characteristics that we look for. In terms of markets that we are more skittish on, I think um, there are great companies being built in small markets, um, but I think it's it's harder for us to get comfortable with that. An example is um, there's a company called Wave, that's a, um, a mobile money uh, transfer uh, company in Africa, and they are based in Senegal. Senegal is a uh country with a population of less than 20 million um but this is like a multi-billion dollar company Stripe Founders Fund Sequoia invested in this company at a 1.7 billion dollar valuation so you know maybe we're missing out by by not looking at small countries as much but that's been that's been one one area we don't look at and then you know I've struggled with the Middle East region I think there of course will be great companies built there but I think it's very fragmented, and in fintech, you know, going across borders into another market is takes a lot of work, and it's always a question of like, is the juice worth worth the squeeze in a bunch of these smaller markets? And then you know, if you look at the big market, you know, the big market sort of in the Gulf region is Saudi Arabia, that poses its own challenges. Um, so I've I haven't done anything. We haven't done anything in that region but sort of adjacent regions we have done um, Pakistan and we would look at Egypt as well
1: amazing um, and Shil, may, maybe to wrap us up uh, what is the best way for a founder that want to pitch you to get to get in touch with you
0: yeah you know I, I think like there's a bunch of different ways to get in touch we you know folks like yourselves share deal flow with us that so we look at together we've invested from cold inbound multiple times I think I posted the email that um, credit book, sent to us you know we 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 led the seed of credit book based off of a cold email you know the guy showed he had done his homework he had a nice subject line and i said okay like i'm going to dig in here really love the team and happy we did because it's been a great great company in pakistan folks reach out to me on twitter i'd say there's no no one way you know i i do think there's something to the signal being stronger if it comes from someone we trust but there's no, no one right way to reach, to reach me, you know, do do your best to capture the attention early on. I will say like, I get way more inbounds than I can deal with effectively. And that's like a function of, you know, needing to build out the team, but you know, apologies in advance. If I don't get back to you uh, on a cold inbound.
1: Awesome. Shield, thank you so much for
0: coming on the show. Lucas, thanks for having me, man.